Hi, you're listening to Kobe Time, a podcast series on markets and economies from DBS Group Research. I'm Tim Rubek, Chief Economist. Welcome to our 59th episode. Today, we have the pleasure of having with us a foremost expert on the area of international economics. Ann Kruger is the Senior Research Professor of International Economics at the School for Advanced International Studies, Johns Hopkins University. She's also a Senior Fellow of Center for International Development and the Harold L. and Caroline Rich Emeritus Professor of Sciences and Humanities in the Economics Department at Stanford University. Dr. Kruger was first Deputy Managing Director of the International Monetary Fund from 2001 to 2006. Prior to that, she had taught at Stanford University and Duke University, and she was also the World Bank Chief Economist in the 1980s. Anne Kruger, welcome to Kopi Time. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. A pleasure to have you. I'd like to begin with the pandemic. Vaccination rates are lagging substantially in the developing world, and economic distress remains deep, uh, even as Western economies are gradually reopening or reopening gradually. Uh, what's your view of the various international support initiatives in place from COVAX to the G20 debt service suspension initiative? Well, the first part of the answer, of course, is that we live in a time of great uncertainty and none of us knows what's going to happen going forward. And while it's certain that things are getting better in many of the advanced countries right now, it is certainly by no means certain that they will stay improving continuously. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> and so I think that any answer anybody gives you has to be qualified. That said, it seems to me that what has been true since January at least, and is true at least for the forthcoming, let's say six to nine months, is that the supply of vaccine is almost perfectly inelastic. There will be some new vaccine production in that expanding vaccine production in that time. But having said that, while it will be expanding, it can't expand more because the demand rises further. That means that what's being produced or what can be produced now and what we can see on the horizon for the next six to nine months is probably what there is. And that's been true since January, at least. And the reason that worries me is that collecting money or giving money to developing countries to get vaccine may enable them to get some vaccine, but it will also drive up the price of vaccine. Much of the vaccine that's being produced is already committed by contract, often to in the countries, including the US, where indeed they finance some of the production and so on and so forth. And maybe it should be allocated otherwise than it is, but giving money to or lending money to developing countries increases their debt disproportionately to how much more vaccine they'll get. <clears throat> so I am a little bit, I was quite worried by the G20 or the initiative that's, that's uh, what are DSSS initiative, uh, because indeed it was giving money to developing countries, by the way, regardless of their financial position in terms of their own ability to get it. And then with COVAX, giving more money to COVAX is a good thing, of course, and it's well-intentioned, but I'm afraid that all it can do that's sensible is buy vaccines going forward. Now, that's not a bad thing, but it doesn't solve any problems right now. And what I don't know and why I'm hesitating to answer more definitely is I do not know how many developing countries have the health facilities and, and the public health system that can deliver what they could get at, at any event, at least in one case that I recall, there was a return of some vaccines because the country that received them had no way of getting them out. So I think we have a big problem in developing countries. The, vaccine, the pandemic is not going to end until we have vaccinations there, no matter what happens. So it's very important. And <clears throat> I wish we could find better ways of getting it distributed, but <clears throat> at the moment, Pardon me, given the political economy of the situation, I can't picture at least President Biden saying, okay, we are going to deprive some U.S. citizens of vaccine so we can give it 
to poor countries, I can picture him allocating extra vaccine, which is not used, which he's already done. And that's happening. And to a greater extent than he would like or than the Americans would like, because that means there's more likelihood of a resurgence here. So it's a very complicated problem. I do think that the um, American administration has put reinstated its trust in the WHO to some extent, at least. And that will enable the WHO to make progress on this very important and very difficult issue. I don't have a simple solution. Obviously, uh, the simple solution would be to produce more, but I don't know how they could do that quickly. So I don't know what to do. But for the long term, would you allocate substantial resources to create redundant supply chains, which will only be necessary <laughs> once in a blue moon every 10, 20 years? I mean, it seems inefficient ex ante. Well, <laughs> it's, that's a good question, but I, I'm not, and I'm not sure the answer. I don't think anybody really knows. But having said that, one of the problems with allocating or sorry, saying we'll do it by mandate or by fiat instead of by the market is that no one then has the incentive to go ahead and build in the private sector the way they would if indeed they can get returns on having produced the vaccine. And already in the U.S., there are reports of companies that are exploring how, how they can get a vaccine, that, for example, that would cover all viruses, which would, be, of course, be huge if we got it. Uh, and there are other uh, examples like that where the private sector is doing things and taking initiative. If indeed we say the next pandemic, <clears throat> the government will collect all the <clears throat> available resources and allocate it, we're also saying uh, that the private sector firms that are trying this will not get a return and will have less of it. How you trade those two off, I think is a judgment, and it's not a judgment call I would like to make until I knew a lot more about the about how you invent a vaccine than I, or produce a vaccine than I currently know. There was an article, however, in yesterday's paper uh, in Washington Post, which was interesting, which talked about the 700 steps necessary in the production of a vaccine. It is not an easy thing to do. And apparently, uh, the fact that the U.S. got production going as quickly as it did was a medical miracle. Indeed, indeed. I think both the uh, world of semiconductors and vaccines are, are sort of the processes are complex beyond the understanding of the average folk. Absolutely. But Ann Kruger, I want to come back to your criticism of the G20 debt service suspension initiative. Um, so your main argument is that, you know, it's not distinguishing between countries with strong or weak fundamentals. But at a time when you're fighting a big fire, uh, you try to protect just about everybody. So is your main issue that it should have been time bound just around the critical months around the pandemic and it's being open-ended? Is that the issue? Well, I don't, <clears throat> one thing I know for sure is at least one country I know of that when it learned that we would get an allocation under the debt postponement initiative, the DSSI, once that happened, one country at least increased its planned expenditures on other things by exactly the same amount in its budget as was going to come to it by debt service relief. Nothing more was done about the pandemic. And it seems to me that if we want to do something about the pandemic, we want, we're going to have to do it in a way that assures that the money gets spent in ways that are conducive to reducing the, the damages under the pandemic, because otherwise you're going to get a political reaction that's very negative in the countries that are indeed allocating resources to that purpose. Right. I think that's a, that's a fair point. Um, I'd like to shift to another issue that you have been very vocal about in your recent publications, which is the China-U.S. trade matters. Uh, you were uh, critical of the Trump administration's uh, trade war 
but you know that's behind us, and we are now on month seven of the Biden administration. How would you characterize that administration's trade policy so far? Well, uh, so far, I think the Biden administration has been far more internationalist in its approach, and in that sense, less heavy-handed and what have you than the Trump administration was. Uh, I think the Biden administration, so far at least, does not seem very much more, does not seem as likely, I guess, as the Trump administration to do more ad hoc measures. On the other hand, the Biden administration has done less than I would have hoped to remove some of the uh, actions that were undertaken by the Trump administration, uh, where indeed, uh, on some of them, uh, Trump initiated the uh, hostilities that led to escalation, as, for example, the initial surround of tariffs and so on and so forth. Uh, I would distinguish a little bit between um, what the China and the rest. The Biden administration seems to be taking the view that by getting uh, an alliance, which is certainly more appropriate than doing it bilaterally, getting a bilateral uh, alliance, sorry, uh, with the Europeans and perhaps with others, and then, quote, confronting the Chinese uh, is the way to go. If the wording were a little bit different, I wouldn't worry so much. I, I would also be more hopeful if indeed there were more efforts to resurrect the, re the role of the WTO. So far, at least, I think the Biden administration is better than the Trump administration was, but it's not as good as I would like. Maybe that's the best summary answer. Yeah, I'm going to probe a little more on this issue. Uh, the um, tariffs, would you have cut them? Well, I would either have cut, I don't know. I'm, I mean, I'm not a, a negotiator and you never know what's going on inside and they may be negotiating on it for all we don't know. But it seems to me that an appropriate approach might have been uh, to sit down with the Chinese initially and to suggest, okay, why don't we both lower our tariffs? We'll make a first step tomorrow. And, and if we do that, will you do it the next day or something like that to get it going? It seems to me there are legitimate issues with China, many of which could be handled more effectively through the WTO. That indeed, however, there are some issues on which we have enough joint interests that it ought to be possible to get some more cooperation and to take less of a hostility there, the enemy view. And it seems to be trade is one of those issues, as is, by the way, the environment. But these are issues where we have common interests. And given especially the difficulties that we have on some other fronts, it would be more useful to have some where indeed there are mutual gains and therefore mutual uh, gains from getting together and negotiating on some of the other things. So. My approach, I think, would at least be different than what's been in the papers so far, although, as you probably, or as certainly I would guess it's been in every paper in the world, the Biden administration has appointed a team to consider what relations with China should be. I think perhaps it's going too slowly. I think perhaps some initial measures could have been taken just as a token of good faith instead of this, we think they're the enemy on every front. Uh, but beyond that, I wouldn't like to criticize because I just don't know enough about the internal workings of the situation. Right. But do you worry that the basic economics of gains from trade or comparative advantage, that that discourse has become a bit too loaded and political, and therefore even the basic wisdom of having a, you know, a globalized uh, system of trade and commerce is something that is not that common to talk about anymore, and not that obvious? And isn't that a, a problem uh, as we conduct policy? Well, it's politicized, but it's always been politicized, at least in this country. 
Uh, I don't know if you've seen uh, Douglas Irwin's wonderful book, uh, Clashing Over Commerce, which is really a, a huge history. It's a huge number of pages, uh, but well worth a read because there's been no time when there hasn't been protectionist sentiment in this country, and I guess in every other, and there's been no time when there haven't been some pro-free trade. The problem in the U.S., I think specifically, but it may be a problem elsewhere too, for all I know, is that in addition to the normal protectionist sentiment, which is there, uh, there has become, President Trump, for whatever reasons, uh, did persuade too many American people that, quote, China was, quote, the enemy, unquote. And the trouble with that is, at the time that Trump was inaugurated in 20, early 2017, polls were showing that about 70% of the American people believed that China trade was good, and China was good, and this progress was good, and so on and so forth. The po basically positive answers. After Biden was elected, 30%. Now, it's much tougher for a president with 30% backing to do something with 70%. And one of the things that the well, the well did get poisoned to some extent beyond the degree to which I think was reasonable. I can't tell you more than that. I think that's a very astute way of framing the discussions. I appreciate that. Uh, so speaking of uh, politics, so, you know, the various support measures uh, that the uh, Trump administration put in place and have been added on to by the Biden administration, the monetary support, the fiscal support measures. I wanted to get a sense of your view of the uh, magnitude of these measures being proportionate to the uh, whole that the American economy found itself. Uh, so Larry Summers, of course, has been very vocal about it. So I just wanted to know whether you also share Larry Summers's view that the stimulus package passed uh, last year and recently put together is too large for the needs of the U.S. economy. I, I think I sympathetic with Larry to a very great degree from the be from the beginning of the pandemic when I basically as self isolated as much as I could took uh, deliveries rather than going to the grocery store etc cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, my expenditures on most everyday type things I think went down about fifty percent. I wasn't deliberately saving, I was just deliberately not spending, you might say. And I don't think I was alone. In fact, most of my friends will report the same kind of thing. And from the beginning, I have thought that we would see an outburst where the rate of growth of demand, when the thing, people begin feeling better, which they do here, whether they should or not is another question, uh, they would begin spending more and more rapidly than supply could increase or would increase. And that seems to be exactly what's happening now. The real question is how long that's going to go on. And my guess is it's going to go, go on barring another surge in the United States. So that's the big risk. But barring another surge, my guess is we are going to see quite a lot of inflation. And it will not just be a one-off uh, rate of price increases. Uh, the number I saw in yesterday's paper was that over the past 12 months in the U.S., consumer prices have gone up 8.5% in one year. Now, that's from the low base because that was sort of, I suppose, one of the troughs of the pandemic. But even so, uh, if that keeps up, even for the rest of this year, it's hard for me to believe that expectations won't kick in and so on. So basically, I'm very much of the view that we have to worry about it. I am not so confident that the, that the pandemic is totally abating and can, will continue abating in the U.S. to think that we can basically ignore that risk. So I think there is some argument for erring on the side of doing too much rather than too little. But I guess I really do think that this next package the packages underway now is too much. Do you uh, worry that the uh, damage to expectations, if indeed we see several more months of uh, wage and price increases, could be substantial? Or do you feel, as most Fed officials <laughs> feel, that they have sufficient credibility and strong enough tools 
to address any spike in inflationary expectations and putting it to rest pretty quickly. Well, the trouble with that is the way to do it, uh, increase the rate at which you're un undoing the qu uh, quantitative easing stuff and be buying back government bonds, et cetera. And if you do that, you raise the interest rate, which is what you need to do. The real interest rate right now is negative for almost everybody. Uh, but the trouble with that, of course, is that that in itself is very likely to bring down uh, the rate of growth more than perhaps enough in such a way that we might go into recession. And the longer the inflation continues be before it's addressed, the more likely it is that the rates will have to be slammed on hard to be effective. And the longer that takes, of course, the more likely we are to go into recession. So I think we're in a very dangerous point and it's very hard to judge. It's very hard to criticize because the risk of another uh, burst of uh, increased rate of expansion uh, of the pandemic COVID cases in the US and elsewhere in Europe, it's already happening to some extent, is substantial. It is not over by any means. And so judging macro policy on the normal basis is very hard, but we have we have already a large fiscal deficit. We already have a very negative real interest rate. We have a very rapid expansion of economic activity. We have a high rate of increase of prices. It seems to me it's dangerous not to begin already some degree of tightening the position of the Fed more than just a little bit as it has done so far. Since you mentioned the fiscal debt issue, I just wanted to talk to you about something that Jason Furman and Larry Summers wrote, uh, which uh, is this idea that you know debt to GDP is a concept that mixes up stocks and flows. Uh, we should think about the net present value of GDP and interest payment as opposed to just the stock of debt versus the flow of GDP. Uh, and of course, those sort of arithmetic immediately make all the ratios look you know, far more manageable. And all of a sudden, 80, 90, 100% of debt GDP does not look like a big number. Um, is that more of an accounting discussion or there's something substantive there? Well, there's something substantive there for the very simple reason that we don't for sure know what, at what rate we should discount. And right now, uh, the apparent rate of discount is so very, very low. Uh, that of course, if it, if you could somehow assure the world that the rate of interest in real terms will never go above one half of 1%, it would be a very different world, but there's no such assurance. And when I talk, spoke a minute ago about the whole issue, I said, we, they're going to have to tighten. And when they tighten uh, and they go to, let's say 4%, which given the rate of inflation now is not at all unreasonable, they will do it gradually for sure, but during that period, debt is going to be increasing and debt service is going to be increasing. And the US fiscal deficit last year was already 15% of GDP. That's right. Now, one of the reasons we had a large deficit is of course, you know, there was a you know temporary severe crunch on the revenue side and a huge impetus to increase um, expenditures as well. Uh, now going forward, hopefully revenues recover and some of the expenditures turn out to be one-off, but not all. I and mean, clearly there is a lot of demand for higher levels of welfare spending and sustained efforts on infrastructure and dealing with climate change and so on. So some of the expenditures will probably become sticky. Uh, one area where there is additional demand is the wage issue and real wage stagnation for low income earners has been a key characteristic of the US labor market for the past decade or longer. Uh, there's a lot of discussion about raising the minimum wage substantially. Uh, what's your take? Well, first, let me go back to the premise and, and make one small correction, uh, because you were talking about uh, where were you, you first said the only issue was the, uh, you know, sort of what happens to wages and so on and so for in push around expenditures. There's another one. And that is the demographic factor. Sure. 
U.S. expenditures on benefits for social insurance, health, and so on, given current law and with no increase, are now going to be estimated to increase by about one percentage point between now and 2025. And I think another one, although I'm not sure of this one, between then and 2030. But certainly we have pressure on the budget from the entitlement benefits that are already written, built in. They do not have to change a law except unless they change it in a negative way and hurt people, which I doubt under the circumstances can happen. Uh, so basically there's already pressure on the budget from that. That said, then we have what you're asking, which is the wage issue and the minimum wage. And those are two separate issues. The first issue is what's going to happen to wages. Now, just I think it was just last month, I lose track of time at the moment, given the pandemic and the cutoff from normal activity, but be that as it may, uh, I think the situation is that real wages rose 3% year on year to June. Real, and that's of the unskilled workers. So there's already a pickup in what's happening in real terms, despite the inflation so far. And as I said, there's a shortage of workers. So that's what you would expect would happen. Now, whether raising the minimum wage is a bad thing or a good thing is, it seems to me not a very good question because, and this isn't you, it's everybody, because it questioned how much. I think most people would agree that having a minimum wage that catches you so that you don't have a small town with one industry where they really exploit workers who are immobile is quite a different thing from having the same minimum wage in New York City, where the wages are clearly quite flexible. There's in and out migration like mad and so on and so forth. And the wage is already higher. In the US, there are several problems. One problem is uh, that we have such a big variation already in the unskilled wage between uh, the places like uh, New York and Silicon Valley, where everything's booming, and places like Southern Mississippi, where indeed uh, things seem to be fairly stagnant. Now, services employment has not picked up as much as it might have so far, and there is debate about why. If it's because people aren't coming back to work because they don't want to, or because they've got something else and they'll come back within a few months once they're sure, those are two very different situations, so we don't know which one it is. And I think that's a real question in terms of doing much on the minimum wage. I think if right now we've had the same minimum wage in nominal terms for quite a long time. And if somebody were to say they're going to raise it to, I don't know the number, but say 10 or $11, I wouldn't worry. And if they want to raise it to 25 by 2025, the only reason I would worry is if in fact we don't get the inflation. If we get inflation, that might, may not be so bad by then. Uh, so there are really a lot of questions around it. Uh, I, I went out to one of my favorite restaurants for the first time in a year and a half the other night. And I happened to get there a little early before my friends got there. And I don't I know the, uh, the guy who runs the place, the manager. And so I said to him, how are you doing? It looks pretty full. He said, yes, but our tables are much further apart than they were. And we're only doing one shift. And I said, well, it looks like you, you could use more tables now, or you could do a second shift. What's wrong? He said, well, before the pandemic, we had seven waiters and we had three busboys. Now we have three waiters and one busboy. We can't service anymore and give adequate service. And I've heard that from now at least three different restaurants. And there's some truth to it. How much is the real question? Like, same as minimum wage. What's the minimum wage that's enough and what's too much? In Puerto Rico, they are subject to the same minimum wage because they're part of the United States, as is New York. And that is ridiculous because, of course, in Puerto Rico, uh, the number of unskilled relative to skilled is much larger. The difficulty is that in Puerto Rico, the participation in the labor force is only 
Why? Because the minimum wage is so high, nobody will take them in the formal sector. People are working, but they don't get the tax revenue, they don't get the other things, and it's a big mess for the entire economy. And it illustrates what can happen when that minimum wage is too high. And I've seen it before in a few developing countries, same thing. Minimum wage goes up, people get driven into the informal sector. That is, uh, that is, I mean, absolutely, uh, you know, wonderfully insightful, uh, both your personal anecdote as well as the theoretical discussion. So you would rather that minimum wage is a state subject? I think it might be a state function, excuse me, or it might be indexed too. So then there's a Mississippi, which is the lowest per capita income of the mainland states, has a lower minimum wage, has a lower average wage starting point now. And then when you index it, uh, you, you take, uh, let's say, um, I don't know, Illinois as 100, Mississippi is 70, and Silicon Valley is 150 or whatever. When you do that, and then you raise it 5%, you don't raise Mississippi the same amount as Silicon Valley, and Mississippi keeps its relativity. Over time, you might want to change that every 20 years as Mississippi gets a lot richer. But one thing we can be sure of is I think that Mississippi will not get as rich as it would if the minimum wage goes up to $15 an hour, as it would if the wage stayed somewhat lower. Right. Racking my brain to think whether other federal economies in the world have tried something like that, but I can't really. Uh, perhaps you know of an instance, but uh, but yeah, that would be a great experiment. Well, there are states in the United States and municipalities that have higher minimum wages than the federal average already here. So there are states that have done it above. But of course, that doesn't let you go below. And until you've done something about that, you've got a problem when you wage, raise a minimum wage for everybody. That's right. I'd like to uh, switch gear to um, spending on industrial or rather industrial policy, if you will, that uh, we saw U.S. Senate pass this uh, act called the U.S. Innovation and Competition Act of 2021. That was last month. Uh, so now we have industrial policy in the U.S., which is not new to Asia. I mean, many countries in Asia have pursued industrial policy um, for many decades. Uh, and there, it's not uh, you know, unambiguous uh, case of success in Asia. Some cases it's worked, some cases it hasn't. Uh, what's your sense of uh, pushing these sort of policies in a system like the US? Well, I'm not so sure that there have been such successes in Asia. Asia or I'm not so sure that the successes in Asia have come up because of those policies. I think in Japan, most everybody would agree that Miki in the 1950s was pushing the losers, not the winners. Uh, and I think it was not that, but opening up the economy, getting competition in and so on that did the big job in Japan and certainly in Korea, which I know a little bit more about than I do about Japan. I do not think that it was picking the winners that did it for Korea either. So that I would question that premise to start with. I think it's even worse when you get pick, trying to pick the winners because nobody knows who the winners are. And not only that, somebody's got to be willing to bet, and it is a bet, uh, that their idea will work. And we want them to be betting because, of course, we all gain when somebody bets right. Uh, but on the other hand, we don't want the taxpayers to lose when they bet wrong. That's one side of the equation. The other side is, very simply, that a bureaucrat naturally is going to be more cautious than somebody betting his own money because the bureaucrat knows that if he's wrong, he might lose his job the penalties for being wrong are much stricter. In fact, there's some evidence, and I don't know the situation well enough here, but apparently there was quite a big push earlier on when SARS was a big epidemic worldwide. Uh, there was a push here for SARS and a lot of brouhaha about it saying, of course, this is gonna be a big thing, let's prepare. And people did. And of course it never happened here because they were successful. What's the reward? 
Everybody's skeptical that there's going to be a pandemic, not the other way around. So the, for the public sector to do something is a different thing than from the private sector to do it in all kinds of ways. Not to mention the politicians like to appoint their relatives and things like that that inherently make the public sector more inefficient. Uh, not to mention that they're much more reluctant to lay off people in the public sector when they picked a bad idea and so on and so forth. So my, my initial skepticism is about that. Now, having said that, it also seems to be that there is enough for the public sector to do in the public sector that it should do. Infrastructure is certainly among it. And I do side, side with the Biden administration saying that that's human as well as physical infrastructure. And certainly in the United States, our primary and secondary educational system has deteriorated quite a bit and should be looked at seriously and supported in a way that makes it more efficient, not just in a way that raises teachers' salaries regardless. And that's a problem for the public sector. Uh, certainly there are other things, even the public health system. Uh, there's a lot of argument about what we should do in many ways. And there are lots of questions there that need addressing. Uh, I can go on to roads. I live in one of the wealthiest counties in the United States and my poor car takes a beating every time I go up the street, I have to go to get out of here. Bump, bump, bump. Uh, and as I said, in one of the wealthiest counties in the US. Uh, it just doesn't make any sense. And bridges, as you know, <laughs> are a big issue. Uh, not to mention, even the private condominium in Florida, uh, the sadly and tragically collapsed two weeks ago because the condo owners, even in that small group, couldn't get together. We need to somehow get our public sector working together on the things it needs to work on, roads, bridges, airports, the whole works on all of those things. And why on earth are we going into spending money on other things? Uh, the semiconductor industry in the US has pushed for years for protection. When it didn't get it up in the 1990s to do two things. One, specialized in the high end just semiconductors, which is where US comparative advantage is, and offshored things uh, that you know about in Singapore and Malaysia, because many of them were offshored there, where they were the more unskilled uh, labor uh, activities in this uh, huge 700 step process to get a semiconductor. Uh, those kinds of things are going to go on and I think they should go on, but they should go on in the private sector. So I guess I uh, think that the uh, National in, uh, in Innovation and Competitiveness Act, which has not passed the house yet, but I fear will, is in fact been one where everybody's loaded things onto it that they want for their district, rather than the kind of act that would make more sense. Even the additional money for the National Science Foundation, which is our basic research support, is directed only to places or is directed out of places that are successful into the ones where they want to shore up in rural areas and so on and so forth. And even, even our research grants to major universities are contingent on their pairing up with a university that has not received enough research money. This is, I think, not the way to get good, the best people doing the best research, nor is it the way to get the best likelihood of a strong semiconductor industry or a strong, uh, strong electronics industry in general. So I'm very negative on that as an approach to economic policy. Uh, but Anne, I guess the pushback to that argument would be that the economic arguments aside, there's a national security argument that uh, you have to forcibly keep certain sensitive supply chains domestically and the private sector simply would not do that because it's not cost-effective for them. And there is this role for public sector policy to see the big picture, the long-term, things that a typical company would not, which is focused on different strategies. Uh, I mean, do you have any sympathy to that counter? With basic research, with basic research, as I said, I do. 
No question about the basic research. Applied research is something else because there you're trying to make a chip for a specific purpose or whatever, and you need to know what the purpose is. And all the evidence that I've seen, and I am not an expert, but all the evidence that I think comes out of people who have looked at it is that the best applied research comes when you're linking the scientists uh, who've done the basic research with those who are doing the, the applied. And when the, the basic research people are cut off from them, they don't have as much of an interest as to where to go. And when the applied people uh, don't have the basic people, they can't do the, the sorts of basic stuff that's needed. So I'm, I'm all for basic research, but I'm for the best basic research. And I'm for it in places where it can then become a public good and used for by applied people where it is most likely to be productive and there are going to be bets on that. It's not a sure thing. Uh, that would be the, and I, I think this business that we can pick the winners. Uh, also, I, I don't understand how a scientist, much less you or I, could sit in a government office and decide which of the, uh, the following five ideas are the best for the next step in public in semiconductors. The only people we could hire that would know enough would be the people in the industry. And the people in the industry are hired in the industry. And there's a big problem there. It's known as capture. And I don't see how it can be avoided. Um, and certainly when you then have pressures to place plants in places where, which have been uneconomic to date, et cetera, et cetera. I have serious concerns. Now you talk about what, what could they do for national security reasons. It seems to me that if the United States is to the point where we are going to worry about national security in Canada and Mexico and Japan and Korea and Germany and so on and so forth, we are in big trouble. Uh, I do think you can stockpile things. I do think stockpiling is an option. We had an oil reserve, not that it was ever quite what it should have been, but we have done that. And stockpiling makes far more sense. Uh, than saying we are going to build up capacity in case we need it. And there may be an argument for having more, more inventory. There may be an argument for encouraging innovation. Uh, there may be startup grants of some kind, but allocated on the basis of merit, not on the basis of location or, or the identity of the individuals doing it. Assuming industrial policy remains in vogue and substantial resources are set aside, not just in the U.S., but in China and perhaps even in Europe and elsewhere, um, what will be the outcome? Just redundant supply chains and misallocation of capital and distortion or something graver than that? Well, if some countries do that and others do it better, do the things they should be doing. And as I said, there's a lot for the government to do in public health, in education, et cetera, and, and other hard infrastructure and so on and so forth. If some countries do it rightly and don't do that and others do it wrongly, the countries that do it better are going to be the ones that are more successful. And we're going to see big failures in some of the ones that are uh, going after all the losers. And when that happens, I think the world will return to uh, having a more sensible set of allocations of resources between the public and the private sector. I would agree that we have not allocated enough resources to public goods in the public sector in the US, which is the only country I want to speak about. But that doesn't mean that we should allocate willy-nilly resources to the uh, public sector and all the other things where governments have been seen over and over again not to be so good. Uh, there, there's many things the government can do that can increase the productivity all across the board and let the winners be picked by those who have the smarts and who have the background and who, have, who know the industry well enough to pick them. Well, I wish some people are listening because these are important points. Um, and uh, you've been very generous with your time. I want to take 
a little extra chunk out of your time to discuss one final issue, which is central bank digital currencies. Um, there is a lot going on all over the world. It's hard to keep track of everything that is happening on a day-by-day, week-by-week basis. But I like the fact that you recently wrote a piece where you recognize the potential, uh, which is tantalizing for a CBDC, but also underline some legitimate key concerns that you have. Uh, if you would be kind enough to walk us through your key concerns on CBDCs. First off, let's distinguish between uh, digital currencies that are issued privately, as for example, Bitcoin and central bank digital currencies. Bitcoin can issue it, it's got no backing. If you want to speculate on it, it's your business. Uh, if you want to do something anonymously, nobody can ever prove you did it because you'll be doing it through the Bitcoin circuit, et cetera, et cetera. If Bitcoin somehow, miners somehow discover a way to solve their puzzles five times as fast, obviously we'll get some more use of Bitcoins, so but we might also get some drop in the price, da 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 da. All that. The other possibility is, of course, that we have central banks forming a digital currency. Then the question is, who determines who gets them and what? And do private individuals get a digital currency? If so, the central bank has the record, or do we keep banks? Now, anonymity is a problem for governments, as you know, because of course, just for tax purposes, you will be able to see whether indeed uh, the, the following guy who just made a billion dollars paid more than two cents in taxes. Uh, there are other reasons you don't want money laundering and things like that. And so basically you want to know who's doing what. If you know who's doing what, which you could with the central bank currency quite easily, they could just issue it directly. You could have an account and I could have an account. Then the problem becomes one of privacy. It also becomes a little bit one of does the central bank allow you as a foreigner to have deposit in the Fed or me to have one in the Malaysian central bank or the Singaporean central bank or the Indian reserve bank? Which of these is it? Uh, and that I think is a big problem. And there's an anonymity versus privacy concern. If you give them anonymity, then you lose control of a lot of things that you want control of. If you respect privacy, then you lose control of things you do. It's just up and down. And I think there is a big problem there. I hope, and I'm sure there's a way to work it out. But right now, it doesn't seem to me we know what it is. Uh, we, right now, as central banks go into the business, I think we would have problems on a number of fronts. What would you do with banks? Would private banks cease to exist? Or would you let the central banks give reserves in, digital currency to private banks who would then hold people's currency. If you don't have private banks, then of course you lose the credit creation in the private sector that's been an engine of growth almost everywhere. If you do have the private banks, then the central bank digital currency, what's it doing? And it's, it's just one more way to do the same thing, maybe. And I think these issues have to be sorted out and it isn't easy. I'm sure people are, I know people are, you know, we've seen, they've announced they have uh, in many, many countries and of course, one or two countries have even adopted a digital currency. So it is happening. And maybe we could let some of them be the guinea pigs and find out how to work it better. Um, so as opposed to say a digital currency being nothing more than a digital banknote, which would be you know anonymous depending on your choice, you wanna keep it in your wallet or you wanna put it in a 
uh, blockchain and people can track your transaction. Beyond that, I think I, I fully take on your point that the trade-off between privacy and control um, is going to be very difficult to solve once you have electronic payments being tracked in every single corner of the universe. Uh, and I suppose the central bank to central bank, the way transfers work right now uh, would, again, have to be subject to all sorts of issues related to privacy and whose payments are you doing and the fungibility of money. So, Anne, I, I see your point. Um, but do you think, uh, because I, I hear this argument a lot that countries like Singapore with you know 99% cell phone and smartphone penetration and 99% bank account holding or very high proportion of the population holding bank accounts, the CBDC proposition is not that compelling. It is really compelling for developing countries where you financial inclusion is an issue, transferring public sector benefits is an issue. So could it be one of those technologies which have better use case in the developing world than the developed world? I don't know the answer to that. To say that India, of course, has developed a big um, system of giving everybody an identification number and That's then right. letting the public sector deposit benefits right into those. And that seems to be having some problems, but by and large successful. That's not a point of digital currency. Um, the, bank, the Indian Bank, Indian Reserve Bank has worked with that. And then you have these, everybody has their account. Getting people to have bank deposits is still something of an issue, but it, more people are banked than were, and that is thought to be a good thing. So it can be done with or without a digital currency. That's not the same, however, as removing the um, coins and things that we have. I don't know what you call it now. Paper currency, I guess, would be the best word that we now have. Uh, the, is something that you can get quite outside the banking system and simultaneously having it. If you're talking about a digital currency, you're talking about doing that through the banking system. And there, uh, it's slightly different because what, it's one thing to, to walk into a village and say, okay, Mr. Farmer, you now have an account and we're going to deposit 50 rupees a month in it. That's perfectly old. That doesn't destroy anything. The, it's, it's a different thing to say, Mr. Farmer, you can no longer hold any rupees. You must put all your money in this account. And that's a huge difference. So the identity card and doing things that way gets rid of something in the public sector uh, and, 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 and omits one layer, if you like, of opportunity for graft and fraud and so on and so forth. And that's probably desirable and more countries may want to imitate that. But that's not the same as switching completely to a digital currency, which would eliminate that. Great. Uh, I want to conclude by going back to the very first point that we discussed that you were talking about the uncertainty around the pandemic, uh, both in the countries that are getting vaccinated and the countries that are lagging. Uh, what's your global outlook for the next 12 to 18 months with the caveat that, you know, there's exceptional uncertainty around pandemic management? Uh, we... a huge... Sorry, go ahead. It, go ahead. It's a huge exception. <laughs> That's the trouble. <laughs> as, as you know, there are parts of the United States that have, have had a huge reductions. Uh, in the number of cases. And then, in fact, this morning's paper said that there were no deaths whatsoever from COVID in Maryland, Virginia, District of Columbia, which is one sort of geographic district that's often reported on, uh, reported in the past 24 hours. That's the first since January of last year. But the number of cases is rising in Maryland already a little bit. It's still way down. It was well over a thousand per day. And it's been under a hundred just these past couple of weeks, but it's rising a little bit again. It got down to 35 and 40. And now it's up in the 60s and 70s. And obviously, as long as you have interstate people traveling and so on and so forth, and you have unvaccinated people, you have a problem. Uh, and that isn't going to go away quickly. And there are pockets, more than pockets, there are areas of the United States in which there's a great deal of anti-vaccine sentiment 
rightly or wrongly. And the effort to persuade people is not going as well as it should. Uh, as you may recall, President Biden wanted to have 70% of the American population with at least one dose by July 4th. He missed, or they missed, or it missed. Uh, it just doesn't happen. And there's some parts that really people have talked themselves out of it. Uh, I hope it doesn't take another wave to convince them they're wrong. Uh, but on the other hand, it's hard to say that the rest of the country can maintain uh, the pace that my state has maintained for the past few weeks, if indeed uh, people are coming in and out of the state who have COVID and there are people in the state who haven't been vaccinated yet. Some states have vaccination rate. I think we're among the highest, actually. Maryland and Vermont are the highest. and We have very low rates of COVID. But people coming in, uh, more people having the vaccine. There are people who aren't vaccinated here. Can we hold it? Some states, possibly yes. Others, no. I'm not enough of an expert to tell you. But what I can tell you is that the experts are very nervous. They are not happy with the situation. They are really worried uh, that the failure to vaccinate enough people will enable COVID to sneak up again. What I can also tell you is, at least around here, where it's now, it used to, it used to be a month, even a month and a half ago, you'd see 90% of people walking along near a store, not outside, uh, wearing masks. Now I don't think it's half. People really have relaxed, and whether that relaxation has come too soon. Uh, so the people, now that they've said it's okay for people not to wear masks if they're vaccinated, nobody knows who's walking around who isn't vaccinated because they don't have masks. Up. So we've got a problem, and I don't think as yet, so we don't, they don't seem to know why European numbers are going up, but I would guess it's the same thing. No, right. Uh, no, I, I suppose the exception that I was, uh, you know, wanting to entertain was that among the vaccinated, the pandemic comes under control, and that becomes a demonstration effect for the rest of the world. Um, but again, that even that is a more of a luxury for the developed part of the world. I live in Singapore, where again, vaccination rates are heading toward 70%, but then neighboring countries are not even in the 5-7% range. Um, so I suppose my final crystal ball gazing question to you is that are we really going to have a major bifurcation in the global recovery, not just this year, but for years to come, because the scar from this pandemic would be far deeper economically than just a short-term sudden stop in activity and then you open up the soon uh, pandemic goes away. Well, we certainly have a little bit of divergence now and we're gonna get a bit more. I somehow don't think it will be long run, partly because production capacity for vaccines is going to rise remarkably fast. Uh, once again, the private sector will have done it. And by, by this time next year, I would guess that the vaccine, there will be a surplus of vaccines. Their costs will have gone down and we'll be seeing increases in the numbers in countries that have certain prerequisites, including the public health staff to administer, including the distribution of things and the ways to get the vaccines to rural communities and things like that. But as that happens, it seems to me that people will be coming back into the labor force the same as here. Uh, we, will have had, we will have lost a few years, there's no doubt about that. And so the gap will be greater than it would have been had more rapid growth in developing countries continued. Uh, so it's a bad thing. And certainly we will lose lives and we will have people miserable and different. So it's a tragedy. But on the other hand, I don't think that it says that we will have a, a permanent long run forever of bifurcation going with a bigger and bigger gap between the developed and developing countries, if that's an answer. I can't, say when, I can't say when it will come back. I would guess if the U.S. continues on this present rate, we'll go back to something like a sustainable growth rate within three or four years, in which case the countries that have been able to get their country, people vaccinated will be able to grow more rapidly than the U.S. and other European countries, and the gap will start closing again, I hope. Well, on that optimistic note, Ann Kruger, thank you so much for your time and insights.
You're welcome. They enjoyed talking with you and you ask hard questions. No, no, it's uh, my pleasure. And again, you know, I listeners probably don't know this, but I've had the pleasure and honor of seeing you work at the IMF a decade and a half ago. So today was really a treat for me. So I'd like to conclude by thanking our listeners. Uh, Kobe Time was produced by Martin Tucky. Daisy Sharma and Violet Lee provided additional assistance. It is for information only and does not represent any trade ideas. All 59 episodes of Kopi Time are available on YouTube and all major podcast platforms, including Apple, Google, and Spotify. As for our research publications, webinars, and live streams, you can find them all by Googling DBS Research Library. Have a great day.